1: We are back in. Good to be back with you on another edition of the SportsMediaWatch.com podcast. I am simply the somewhat capable host of the show, T.J. Reeves. He is the owner, the operator, the purveyor of the site, SportsMediaWatch.com. Good to be back with Paulson, a.k.a. John Lewis. Uh, here for our latest edition as we get things underway after the Olympics have been put to bed, after the Daytona 500 has been run. Controversy in college basketball in a nationally televised game for Jawan Howard and a post-game handshake. What to do about the handshake line? Are you kidding me? Much to get to, John Lewis. I'm always uh, figuratively extending the hand to you and and shaking it, not trying to do the blow-by, not telling you that uh, I'm going to remember that. No, no, we all remember uh, this show, or at least do our best. How are you, sir? Good to be back with you.
2: I'm doing well. You know, I remember uh, back in the 2001 second round of the playoffs, uh, Derek Anderson of the Spurs was going down to the lane, had a wide open layup, and Juwan Howard pow- fouled him pretty hard. And Derek actually suffered a separated shoulder and missed the rest of that series. And Juwan, you know, was very apologetic, but the fans in Dallas uh, were not too pleased <laughs> with that. So. Oh, wait, no, the fans more... in San Antonio. He was on the Mavericks.
1: Uh, right. So. Uh, the the, uh, the fans in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, got something similar in terms of fireworks after the game. We'll get to all of that coming up. Lots of topics to cover. Reminder, however you found us and wherever you found us, whether you found us through a social media link, whether you found us through John's site, sportsmediawatch.com. Thank you for doing so. Make sure to follow or subscribe the podcast wherever you get the podcasts. Where you get your podcast, find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast. follow us, subscribe. It'll come automatically to you a little bit earlier in the week. John also does an excellent job of, uh, promoting us more through his site and some of the different topics that are relevant on it. Hey, shout out. We actually have a fan. I, I often uh, want to bring up our fans when they out themselves. And that's the, the phrase I'll use for Mike Gill, who's a radio host in the New Jersey area. He gave us both a shout out, like coming off the weekend that, hey, I enjoy the sportsmediawatch.com podcast. Mike, if you're hearing us right now, just know that John and I are nodding along, smiling. And the check is in the mail. We have a fan. We have apparently more than one fan, which is good to know, John, because when we began all of this, we weren't sure if we were going to have fans, but we we have some that we do hear from from time to time.
2: Yeah, it's always good to hear from people who enjoy your work.
1: Yeah. And you know what? Honestly, I like hearing from people, even if they don't enjoy it, as long as you're somewhat civil, at least more civil than the handshake line. I keep coming back to the handshake line in Michigan and Wisconsin. We'll get to that in a moment. We come off the weekend where the Olympics is done. Um, I'm not going to speak for you, but I just thought in my own brain, you probably said, thankfully, when I said that there are a lot of, there are a lot of people that probably felt similar to that. It is over. It is the lowest rated. Am I correct? Primetime Olympics ever. Certainly the lowest rated one of the winter Olympic variety, John, this is not unexpected. You, you forecast it. You talked about it. Now it has, it, it has actually lived out and played out that, uh, they've lost more than half the audience than the last couple of Olympics they've had. Uh, one more time, what do you make of it now that it has come and gone and not, not even a Super Bowl lead-in a week ago? Sunday could help save it. Not even the figure skating could help save it. What, what are your thoughts here now that it's done?
2: Well, the Olympics as a brand is, is damaged, right? And, you know, there's been all this talk about China and obviously China was a, a factor, you would think, but realistically people don't choose whether or not to tune into sporting events because of any kind of global issue. Um, You know, I mean, it's not necessarily a good thing, but I think more people are along the lines of like Phil Mickelson or that, uh, that uh, minority owner of the warriors. You know, a lot of people in this country don't really care what's going on in the world. So I don't really buy that. That was a huge impact on the numbers. I think it was part of the reason why the numbers were so low, But I think if this Olympics had been in Oslo, Norway, you know, I don't think the numbers would have been much better. They would have been better. I don't think they would have been much better. So this is not a China issue necessarily. I don't think it's a COVID issue necessarily because, you know, Pyeongchang, nobody knew the word COVID, right? And ultimately, that Olympics was way stronger, nearly 20 million viewers, but it was a record low at the time. And nobody at the time in 2018 was saying, hey, what a great Olympics for NBC. There's a longer term trend going on here. There's a longer erosion of the Olympics as a brand that, uh, you know, ultimately I, I think even though I would expect viewership to bounce back in 2024 in Paris and 26 in Milan and certainly in 2028 in Los Angeles, even though I'd expect viewership to bounce back for those games, the fact of the matter is we're still talking about a property that is in pronounced decline and long-term decline. I, I think uh, for NBC, you know, I would be very curious how much of an investment they wanna make into the Olympics as a property going into the 40s, right? Because their deal is through 2032 in Brisbane. Well, we saw what happened the last time the Olympics was in Australia in terms of ratings back in Sydney in 2000. I doubt Brisbane is gonna be partic- you know much better. Uh, and, you know, uh, will NBC wanna commit to another Round of a decade plus with the IOC, you know, and God only knows where they're going to put the Olympics next. I mean, they might put it in North Korea or something. I mean, who knows, right? So you have a circumstance where you've got to deal with a very corrupt organization in the IOC, an organization that is probably even more corrupt than FIFA, which is pretty amazing, right? You've got to deal with, (laughs) you know, all of the ridiculous global issues. And then you got to deal with the fact that the kind of Property that the Olympics was, which is every two weeks, let's gather around, get our national unity going, and root on these superhumans who can do amazing feats that nobody else can do. It's just, it just doesn't exist. We don't gather together and rally around anything. There's no rally around the flag effect anymore in this country, right? George W. Bush had a 90% approval rating after 9 11. That's never happening again. You could have the exact same tragedy happen now. And, you know, whether it was Biden or Trump or Obama or whoever, you'd, I would be surprised if you saw 60 percent or even 55 percent. I mean, frankly, you might not even see 50 percent. That's just not the kind of country that we have anymore. Uh, you know, realistically, people aren't going to rally around. They might watch the same thing together like the NFL, but that's not really rallying around. It's not a rah-rah national pride thing. It's just you know something people do. The Olympics, it's this investment of energy and you know, good positivity, you know, and there's too many outlets out there, whether you're talking about cable news or or online platforms or Twitter feeds where their entire, you know, reason for existing is to divide people and get people to be riled up and angry. It's hard to create that kind of mass viewing event when you've got that going on. Beyond anything else, the whole Olympic ideology was based on this kind of insanity that the NBC and the IOC, created where the athletes were superhuman and the athletes amazingly have been able to live up to that standard for decades and decades but it's an impossible standard to maintain forever and we're seeing whether it's Simone Biles or Schifrin this year the athletes aren't superhuman but NBC and the IOC this entire time have been dependent on the idea that these athletes can overcome anything and be excellent at the same time which is hard to do. You know in the 90s we had the 90s was this great, glorious decade, right? You know, especially if you were a kid, because there was a lot of stuff that was going on that ultimately doesn't make any sense anymore. We would look at something like Michael Jordan working himself to exhaustion, ill, really risking his health and scoring the way he did, hitting the big shot. Uh, it was uh, get, getting to the line, hitting the first free throw, missing the second, but getting the rebound and hitting the three immediately after. That kind of stuff is not reasonable to expect but that was the standard that was set. And for years we've had this standard of athletes being able to push themselves beyond all reason. You know, it's not an example that anybody, you know, really should have been citing as something good. But if you remember when Kobe was on trial, he would go to Colorado for his pretrial hearings and then he'd come back and he'd play great basketball, even in the playoffs. And this, of course, was not something people should have been praising, right? But ultimately, right. it came down to this whole idea. You can push yourself beyond anything, no matter what is, no matter what you're facing, you can push yourself and push yourself. And the other side of that was back then, when the athletes invariably failed to do that, we didn't view it as a mental health issue, we viewed it as a personal failing. So Andre Agassi is using meth it's a personal failing. He doesn't care enough about winning. Jennifer Capriati is a child in in doing all these, you know, alcohol and and all these other things that are clearly cries for help. She's a problem child. Venus and Serena have a sister who is murdered. And then Serena falls off in terms of the quality of her play. And you have people saying, well, she's not devoted enough to tennis, right? Ultimately, we had this weird, bizarre idea that the only way to respond to adversity was with athletic excellence and anything that fell short of that, you were bad. Well, right. that just doesn't fly anymore, right? And as that no longer flies, we are seeing athletes no longer viewing themselves as necessarily having to push themselves beyond what is reasonable. And so, you know, Simone Biles probably could have pushed herself last year at the Olympics at great risk to her health, right? You know, gymnastics. I've said it before. It's not a. It's it's not a safe sport. I saw a, a, a routine earlier this year at the start of the year, uh, some random. You know, I don't even know the name of the of, of the of the performer. She was doing her floor uh, tumble, and she landed a little bit on her neck. Right now, I say a little bit because if she had landed flush on her neck, you would have heard about it. But when she landed, it was like almost head first right? This happened to Caitlin Ohashi at UCLA once too coming off the beam. This is stuff that happens all the time. So I'm sure Simone could have competed last year and pushed herself to it at great risk to her own health. Maybe she would have done that 10 years earlier, right? But it's dangerous. It makes sense that she didn't. Ultimately, that leaves NBC with a circumstance where this athlete that they've created as a god, right? This, you know, person who can put through anything is the most incredible death-defying stunts. She she's not going. She's human. NBC can't sell human. They've been spending the you know, <laughs> they've been spending 30 years selling superhuman. Michaela Schifrin, right, right. very human, very poor performance. In the 90s, people would have been seizing upon her, saying, Wow, she really fell off. Now we know, you know, her father passed away, right? You know, she probably wasn't at her best mentally in, in this. Uh, And ultimately, you can't sell human vulnerability and frailty. So for, you know, as as a brand, the Olympics ultimately is kind of passe. It's based on conditions that no longer exist. It is based on unity that no longer uh, exists in any real way. And it is based on a vision of athletes that's no longer tenable.
1: Uh, a lot there to unpack, so I want to share a couple of things because, actually, for the audience, we pulled the curtain back a little bit. You and I are recording this podcast on the 42nd anniversary of the miracle on ice of the United States defeating the Soviet Union, Russia, uh, in Olympic ice hockey at the Lake Placid uh, Winter Olympics, 1980, and uh, it, exactly what you were talking about. You had everything in the same cauldron of the unexpected United States college-age amateurs beating the Russian Red Army essentially professional team of late 20s, early 30-year-old, grown NHL-caliber all-star, worldwide-caliber all-star hockey team. So you mix that in with the tension politically of the United States and Russia that eventually led to the boycott of the 1980 Moscow Summer Olympics – for President Jimmy Carter and all the summer athletes that never got a chance to go and participate in those Summer Olympics. So all of that was in the same cauldron. And the upset is such an iconic upset that we're still talking about it 42 years later because a lot of it was rally around the flag time, USA, USA, and that night. I I am still amazed to to sit here and tell you that that was 42 years ago because I still remember – all of that. I'll tell you a brief story here in a second, but I just I thought of that when you were saying that, that that day, what's the best vernacular slang that we can use that day is dead, that day is not going to come back the same way with rally around and situations like that are once, once in a century anyway, yeah. uh, in all of sports, but but I was just thinking that when you were saying that john that here we are on the 42nd anniversary of that upset. And, uh, and what it translated to, by the way, ratings wise, Uh, For the audience, I was just looking while you were saying something. It was a tape delay. A lot of people don't remember that. It was a tape delay on a Friday night. The audience was somewhere around 30 million, if I saw this correctly, primetime on ABC on the tape delay. The bigger number was the Sunday morning, Sunday early afternoon and Sunday morning gold medal game with Finland on ABC. And that one was 37 million that watched that gold medal game. Again, Olympics would soar to greater audience heights into the 80s and into the 90s. But j- just as a reference point, that was kind of rally around the flag time. So there, I shared that. Any, any thoughts on the follow-up of that before we move on and move off the Olympics? Well, you know, and
2: just everything you said, mass event, I will note, you know, back then small wonder is probably getting 40 million too, right? You know, hardly any channels back then, but, and you know, remember series finale of mass two years later had a hundred million viewers. So, Mm -hmm. you know, but I mean, again, very impressive numbers, certainly a lot more impressive than the 3 million NBC got for its top hockey game of the Olympics this year, the women's final, the gold medal game, 3.5 million compared to to that, right. Uh, you know, it says a lot about uh, who your viewership is because NBC was bragging about that 3.5 million. That was <laughs> one of their best numbers of the Olympics.
1: So. I, I did see in just doing the research, the 2010 gold medal game won by Sidney Crosby for the men against the United States in overtime in Vancouver, total script, total, total Hollywood make-believe script acted out in real life with him scoring the game-winning goal. I believe that got somewhere around 25 million for the gold yeah. medal game, 25, 30 million, I
2: think it was something, 27.8, yeah.
1: 27.8 million. Again, yeah. massive compared to what the present day is. And again, that was the first time, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, that's the first time professionals against professionals in the uh, in the Olympics, and it ends up being Canada winning it with an overtime game against the United States. So as uh, as that plays out, so just a good reference point uh, on that. I shared this story, and I'll share it as quickly as I can here. You'll you'll be fascinated by this because again, I'm a little older. Everybody's kind of got a where were they for that USA miracle on ice, and again. Um, Just to set the scene, this was completely unexpected and not a planned situation or a planned event for ABC. Um, The Russian Red Army hockey team had won everything for about the last three previous Olympics and World Championships. They had beaten the NHL All-Stars in something called the Canada Cup uh, back a couple of years earlier. They were seemingly unbeatable, especially by college amateurs. So, John, you can't convey enough in that time frame this came out of nowhere, like a lightning bolt that the United States would even contend or win. So at that time, I am a little TJ. I'm a 10 year old TJ. I'm now giving away my age, John. And I am with my father and with a couple of other dads and sons, and we are at an Atlanta Hawks basketball game. Here we go into your NBA wheelhouse and the wayback machine. Uh, I, should, I should maybe be on uh, what do they call what do they call those look back ones on the NBA? Uh, network whenever they go back to the greatest games or whatever it is Uh, this is a hardwood classic from tj because here we go so i am at the atlanta hawks game on the friday night february 22nd 1980 the reason why i'm going to remember all of this and do remember all this and and filter it in is the hawks are playing at the old omni in downtown atlanta and this is the tree rollins dan roundfield uh john drew hawks long before dominique wilkins obviously long before trey young in the present day they're playing the Phoenix Suns, John Lewis, long before Chris Paul, DeAndre Ayton, Devin Booker now, long before Sir Charles, Dan Marley, Kevin Johnson of the 90s. You mentioned going against Michael and the Bulls back in the 93 NBA Finals, long before all of this. So this is the Phoenix Suns with Paul Westfall with Walter Davis, the Greyhound. This is the late 1970s, early 1980s NBA. Uh, This is the first year, by the way, that Magic Johnson and Larry Bird have turned pro. They're both rookies in the 1979-80 NBA season, February of 1980. So little TJ is in the arena, and here's what I remember about what happened. We knew the game was on tape delay. There is no, there are, there, there's no internet. There are no cell phones. There's no way to find out what's going on unless you had a radio telling you. Let me say that again. Your, your outside lifeline is the radio telling you what's going on because this game's not being televised live. It's being televised at five Eastern time um, taped and to be shown at seven Eastern time after the local news and after the the late night AB, or the uh, the ABC World News Tonight, uh, national news, they're going to show the Olympics and show the game. Tape delay. So in the middle of the first quarter of the basketball game, John Lewis, they make an announcement on the PA at the Omni. Ladies and gentlemen, we have an update from Lake Placid, New York. The United States and the Soviet Union are tied three to three in the hockey game. The crowd applauds. Ooh ah! The crowd applauds for a few seconds. The game goes on about five minutes later during a stoppage in play. The PA announcer again says, ladies and gentlemen, we have an update. From Lake Placid, the United States has taken the lead on the Soviet Union 4-3. to That's the Micah Ruzioni goal. The place now erupts for a second. Yeah, they cheer for a second. The game resumes. Paul Westfall playing for the Suns. Tree Rollins for the Hawks. There's a stoppage of play again. A dead ball, a foul. The ball is out of bounds. And the PA announcer says, ladies and gentlemen, we have an announcement. From Lake Placid, New York, the United States, and the hair on the back of my neck is standing up right now. The United States has defeated the Soviet Union four to three in men's ice hockey. I exaggerate you not, John Lewis. The entire arena, probably seven or 8,000 people, probably about half full on a Friday night in the Omni, stands up and roars and begins to applaud. And everyone is in a standing ovation for what seemed like 10 minutes, probably 60 seconds, maybe 30 seconds. The players on the court, John, are clapping. I vividly remember the referees are clapping. The benches are standing up clapping. Everyone is clapping. The USA, USA chant that reverberated through that hockey arena in Lake Placid is going on in the Omni in Atlanta, 1,500 miles away. I say all that to say what what a memory. I've taken it with me now 42 years later to be there with my dad when that was going on and remember where you were and everybody's kind of got to remember where you were. We couldn't rush to watch it on TV because we had to drive back home after the NBA game. I only saw a clip or two on the news and got to watch it much later in life uh, and relive it. But that is your point that you're making. We don't value it the same way anymore. The patriotism Mm -hmm. of it isn't there anymore. And I don't know that they can ever get it back even in a fractional sense down the road for the Olympics. It's a shame, but that's where we are.
2: You know, in, in telling that story reminded me a little bit of when bin Laden was killed and you mm-hmm. had that reaction at the Mets Phillies game. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it is an interesting thing because I'm talking about the Olympics decline. You only have to go back 10 years to find London did really well, big numbers. And it was kind of that, it felt kind of like that old school rally around everybody thing. And I do feel like, and maybe this is me being too online, right, as is the term, I feel like something occurred over over the past decade, culturally in this country, uh, and I would not suggest that it is limited to any one particular political persuasion, uh, where you now have a level of divisiveness that we didn't even have in 2012. And, you know, I mean, it's weird, because the thing about it, you know, the, the early Obama years were weirdly low-key. Like, it was almost like the 90s again. And I know that when Obama ran in 08, there was all sorts of ugliness, a very ugly campaign, a lot of ugly stuff. But, the, you know, Obama's presidency was like, kind of, to an extent, I mean, I don't want to go out of my lane here in terms of starting talking politics it was kind of trivial there for a few years. I mean, that was the era of Gangnam style, Obama Mm -hmm. being interviewed by Glozell and, you know, doing, doing late night talk shows every five minutes, being on with, with, with Zach Galifianakis, it was a weirdly laid back, very kind of not angry period. Now, you know, you had the tea party protests, you had a lot of anger and acrimony, you had the beginnings of Twitter starting to worm its way into everybody's lives. But I mean, 20, probably 2010 to 2013 was 90s two, in terms of just being this kind of weird era where nothing too serious was going on. There were right. tragedies, of course, it was like there were in the 90s, but nothing too serious, nothing too dark. Nobody was, you know, rending their garments every five minutes over some kind of nonsense. And I think that kind of era is conducive to the Olympics being a big property. And if you think about it, during the last stretch of real societal discontent in this country, in the '60s and into the '70s, two decades I am pleased to say I was not alive for—not <laughs> out of any kind of—not any of any kind of age situation, but they just seemed like too miserable.
0: They Watch just seem like
2: <laughs> I'm just saying. they seem like too miserable decades, and I'm glad I didn't have to live through them. Right, uh, and ultimately, when you look back at the Olympics during that period, '68. And all of the acrimony in 68. 72, the Nightmare in Munich. 76. uh, I don't even, Where was the Olympics in 76?
1: 76 was Montreal for the summer games. And I want to, because remember, they used to do them in the same year. I want to say it was like uh, Grenoble, France, maybe for the winter that same year, something. How about that off the top of my head? It might have been Switzerland. I can't remember, but it was something like that.
2: I don't know. But I mean, the point being, when you're talking about Mexico City and all the acrimony there, Munich, the nightmare at Munich, the boycott in, in, Mos- in Moscow in 80, the Olympics was a pretty weak property then, too. And it was right. it was a period of time where, you know, you talk about Mike Tirico editorializing about the IOC, you know, Howard Cosell editorialized about the IOC a heck of a lot more harshly than that. Yes, back he did. And so I think the Olympics, in order to work as a property in this country, it's got to be, you know, Uh, you got to have a country that's on a sugar high. This country was on a sugar high from like 1984 to 9-11, right? It was on a sugar high. Everything was just kind of sunshine and rainbows and the beanie babies were a thing. And yes, that covered up serious things that were going on. That covered up for the domestic terrorism that resulted in the bombing at Oklahoma City. It covered up for the riots in Los Angeles in 1992. But on balance, this was a country that was just kind of really in a very trivial spirit from basically the mid 80s until the very morning of 9 11 and of course i am old enough of course to remember that that is the biggest societal change you'll ever experience in the course of an hour in your life right and people uh, you know one of the things that's really irritated me over the past couple years is people trying to compare covid to 9 11 because There's never been a period of time over the past two years where COVID killed 3,000 people in three hours, right? Not to take the conversation to a dark place here, but 9-11 stands alone as that kind of a massive altering that today's undergrads could never possibly understand in a million years because they've never experienced anything like it kind of thing, right? So from 1984 to 9-11, sugar high, Olympics can do great in that environment. And then, you know, that weird little sugar high redux that we had at the start of the 2010s, the Olympics can do great in that environment too. But when things are really ugly, when the soul of the nation is as corroded as it honestly is right now, as it was throughout the 60s and 70s, you know, the Olympics is just not going to be the same kind of property. This is a property that needs national pride or not, not even national pride, but it needs a country where, people are game for the fantasy the fantasy of unity the fantasy of the superhuman all of those things that nbc sold really well in 1996 with the neil diamond coming to america for that right. whole olympics right all that stuff that nbc could sell in 96 and in 02 and in 2008 in beijing beijing people were excited about that we you know people want to try and do some revisionist history The Beijing Olympics was a revitalization for the Olympic movement in this country. People were all in. If you look back at the ratings coming off of Athens and Sydney.
1: Let me give you an example of that. Just while we go along here on the sportsmediawatch.com podcast, love the insight of John Lewis. So my twins had just been born in late June of 2008 So this is roughly two months after they have been born. It is a Friday night when Michael Phelps was swimming that epic leg of the relay where he wins by what? John, a whisker, like like two one-hundredths of a second. He touched the wall and come from behind fashion. I had my sister visiting here. She lived in Seattle, Washington at the time, had come here to visit and be here for the week and see the twins and meet the twins for the first time as two-month-olds. We had other family friends that were here in my house, in the house where I am sitting and doing this podcast with you uh, right now. And the twins are sound asleep snoring because they're little babies, they're two-month-olds, and we are on our feet screaming and hollering for Michael Phelps to catch whoever that was from whatever country it was, to your point that it was still a big deal to be rally around the TV, rally around the flag, and watch this. Time displaced, it was probably at like midnight on a Friday night, 11 p.m. on a Friday night, that that was happening, or a Thursday night or something like that, that summer. Um, I still remember that. And that is your point, that it was still there in 2008. I wanted to illuminate the point you were making in my own household.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that was a resurgence for the Olympics, because Sydney was a bust. Athens was an improvement, but not much better. And then Beijing, it all came back. That wasn't because America was so enamored with Beijing, but there wasn't the hostility you have now, obviously. It was because you had Phelps, and you had, it wasn't uh, Biles or, or Gabby Douglas or Raceman. It was, uh, let me see if I can remember Nastia Lucan and Sean Johnson. And uh, I can't remember the names of anybody else, but uh, Alicia Sacramoni, right? And it was, you know, it, it was just a resurgence.
1: And the basketball yes. came back into prominence because we had lost. We had lost in 2004. We had lost in the world championships and the greats of the NBA, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, uh, Dwayne Wade, all of the top players, They came and played with Coach K as the coach, and the basketball drew people in, too. I still remember watching the gold medal game with two crying babies around me, and I even took a little selfie video of the two babies crying around me while we're winning the gold medal game, going, someday you will understand the resurgence of USA Olympic basketball, ladies. Uh, Not right now as a two-month-old because you want your bottle or you want your diaper changed, but I still remember that. We had all of that in the same pot. Michael Phelps, the gymnast, the the track athletes that won, the USA men's, basketball team uh, that won etc etc it was it was a different time and I think we've more than articulated that time is gone and I, I don't know it's going to be a long time before we get to Los Angeles in 2028 for the Olympics that will be here and who knows what the audience will yeah. won't be when that comes anything else real quick before we move on to other subjects that we want to get to
2: yeah I mean just as far as 2028 goes it's, it's going to depend a lot on where the country is I I really do think that. And, you know, I mean, some of this is not going to be attributable to the country. Some of this is just TV changing, but I mean, as far as there being energy for the Olympics in 2028, you know, I mean, I don't know, I'll tell you something. I know he was a controversial president at times, but like that whole Obama thing, people were really excited about it. That was like the, I mean, even he had what 60% at the start. There was optimism, right? And I I know the president doesn't really matter that much, right, but I think it says a lot about where the country's mind is at, that we've had like 10 straight years of the president's like at a 40% approval rating. Like in that, getting that positivity back, that you know, the, a little bit less of the warring going on is gonna be, I think some part of getting the Olympics back to where it was. I just don't think the Olympics can succeed the way that NBC wants it to. If you have a country that feels like it's at war with itself, which, you know, or a country that has a pretty severe malaise. And, you know, we got some Carter level malaise going on right now. So,
1: And it's, it's all points well taken. The divide is clearly there. Who knows what they can get back? All right, let's cover, cover a couple of other things uh, as we roll along. Uh, the NBA All-Star Game was played this weekend, the Daytona 500, NASCAR's biggest race this weekend. At the time that you and I are taping this, we don't have the final numbers in for both. We know that NASCAR's ratings have been in decline. Everything's ratings have been in decline, basically, except for the NFL continuing to succeed and soar. A rookie NASCAR driver won their biggest race, Austin Sindrich. It's not the the biggest stars and the biggest names like a Kurt Bush or a Joey Logano the biggest star so it was a rookie that won and frequently there's kind of an anonymous guy that steps forward and wins at Daytona it's a super speedway it's exciting okay there we go we, we know that Steph Curry went berserk with all the three pointers in the all-star game LeBron hit the key shot at the end all right John what are your thoughts on television viewership coming off Sunday if we don't have the exact numbers in front of us
2: Well, we don't have any numbers in front of us at all because of the holiday, right? So because of President's Day, we won't get anything until tomorrow. Um, You know, my perspective is I would expect that both Daytona and the NBA All-Star game will end up having increased over last year. You are talking about in Daytona, a better increase. Last year was a 2.8 rating. The NBA All-Star game actually had a better rating than Daytona 500 last year. And that was the lowest rated NBA All-Star game of all time at a 3.1. So both coming off of all-time record lows, uh obviously the nba could care less if the all star game does really well in terms of the finals are really the more important factor for nascar the you know daytona 500 is the finals uh and uh, we'll see how it does getting the race in by 630 very important right last few years rain delays the yep. month, remember a couple of years ago they had trump at the very beginning and the ratings were higher uh and then immediately after the rains came and it ended up being the lowest rated ever then the next year, even lower, uh, in with the rains coming. Uh, even though the race finished same day on a on, on a Sunday night, last year's number was so low. I know NASCAR has talked about the the, the rain being a factor and you know kind of excluding it for that reason. Even with rain as a factor, the Daytona Five Hundred has no business averaging less than a three rating. That that was that was stunning last year. So um, I mentioned this. I was on the uh, Richard Dodge podcast earlier today uh, with Austin Carp, and uh, I mentioned this: the fact that you know who would have thought that NASCAR's floor for the Daytona Five Hundred was under a three? I would never have thought that that would be right. A four. And last year, Daytona ended up with a lower rating than the Indy 500. In, is, in
1: the heyday, wasn't NASCAR getting like a seven and eight at a 10, least? An a 11. 10? Yeah. Sure. So, but again, it kind of goes back to what you said. If you now are comparing it to what you had in the glory days of the 90s and the early 2000s, where Dale Earnhardt was such a phenomenal personality, love hate personality, Jeff Gordon was the perfect. Uh, the tonic to go against him. You, the, the love, hate thing, the Celtics Lakers thing with those two, uh, the, the sport rose in popularity. It branched out all over the country because now it was in the Northeast. Now there were tracks in the West uh, all over the place. You cannot, you cannot replicate that. You cannot duplicate that. And that's what they're also suffering from. Those guys move on. Dale Earnhardt unfortunately died. Jeff Gordon eventually retired. Tony Stewart, another brash personality, eventually won some and retired. And then the, the whole novelty of it, all of that has waned. And so you get what you get now down to those, those lower levels. It doesn't mean it's any less exciting. It's just not the same personalities, and it's not the same circumstances, John, which yeah. is what you were talking about a little while ago with the Olympics for Daytona.
2: You know what I've always thought with NASCAR, because it's it's hating in the mid 2000s is inexplicable. Like it went from a solid draw to getting, you know, 10, 10 rating at Daytona and 11. You're getting big numbers at Fontana. And and it was unbelievable. And a lot of this happened. Remember, Dale Earnhardt died the first race that ever you're on Fox, the first. Correct. And so the ratings resurgence that they had was almost exclusively after Dale Sr. died so none of that makes a lot of sense and especially now when there's no energy for it at all really compared to where it was and i wonder if you know to kind of bring bring the politics back in this was a very different country culturally in the early 2000s right there's only one time a republican has won the popular vote for president in like 30 years it was 2004 that was george bush he didn't win the electoral college and not the popular vote he won both right and This was a more culturally conservative country then, which I think helps a sport that is very tied into the, you know, I mean, we all know NASCAR is more culturally conservative. And that to me doesn't explain everything. But when you're trying to figure out, wait, how was NASCAR this big in 2005? And then after 2005, every subsequent year kept shrinking. And I think the cultural shifts have to play some kind of role because it just, it's inexplicable. NASCAR is huge in 2001 to 05, Bush's first term, Bush probably at the peak of his powers in 05 after winning re-election with the popular vote. And then every year since is kind of steadily declining as the country shifts very strongly in the other direction culturally. Um, I think, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that's everything. I wouldn't even say that's most of it. But I think that's got to be some level of a factor in terms of why NASCAR fell off the way it
1: did. the novelty, though, and the expansion because of the novelty and the new experience and the fan base expanding all of that again, just weigh in on that. I think that's got to be considered a big part of it. And you can't recapture that. It does yep. not happen again.
2: Well, you know, I mean, the, well, you know what? I, I mentioned the politics and everything. Of course, it also helped. They had a real TV deal. For the first time in their whole history. Mm -hmm. They actually were on, like, consistently. You're on Fox this week, and instead of being on TNN the next week, and then ESPN the week after, then back on Fox and ABC, then CBS, then TNN again. They were on Fox week after week after week. And then NBC in the second half of the season and TNT.
1: And Fox, by the way, did a tremendous innovative job with that and establishing consistently week after week after week with the sound, the sights, and and what they were bringing to it. Not unlike what they did with the NFL about eight or nine years earlier when they got the NFL in the mid-90s. It helped, and it helped with the fact that, okay, here's another race and another race and another race where they're doing the same thing. I think it's another good point you make in aligning that. Very true. And you
2: know, you bring up the personalities back then. Of course, let's be real. You can't replace the personalities they had. Obviously, Dale Senior's death, but Dale Junior becoming a star in the late yes. back and becoming a you know someone people's hearts went into, right? Uh, you know, obviously Jeff Gordon, Tony Stewart. I mean, Tony Stewart. I was thinking about this the other day. I don't know about Tony Stewart just being on TV right now, right? Like, okay. That whole thing with that incident at the dirt race, you remember what I'm talking about? Correct. Yes. It's just kind of wild to me that he's just totally back on TV and like in everyone's good graces. For those that
1: don't know what you referenced and can't Google it fast enough. As we talk on the podcast, he was involved about eight or nine years ago in a dirt race on a Saturday night in upstate New York, in which another driver Got into contact with him. There was a wreck. The driver got out of his car, and as they were making lap back around, the driver was coming over unhappy, and Tony Stewart ran into him, ran him over. Uh, it, it was claimed to be an accidental thing, dark, et cetera. There was an investigation. It was, it was eventually concluded to be an accident, what have you. Um, it, it certainly changed his trajectory for, for that and, and probably hastened his retirement uh, after that. I thought he was pretty good on the coverage. I I heard coverage for probably maybe about a third of the race, his insight on different things about the car and strategy at a super speedway. And what you're thinking here, I thought that was pretty good, but I I get your larger point that here. He's back in the broadcast booth in the iconic booth at the Daytona 500 calling the race. Yeah. Yes.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, exactly. It's a big role. Um, you know, this is a role that Daryl Walsh had for years. Jeff Gordon has had it. And, you know, look, I'm not saying he should be judged forever or anything. It's just, you know, if we're talking about Mo, look, I mean, it's rare for an athlete to have taken another athlete's life, even accidentally. It's tremendously rare. And I just find it... I, I was just a little bit surprised that he's on TV. You know, uh, that's... Yeah, you know, and Fox is a very good thing going in terms of its broadcasters. I like Clint Boyer. I like his whole vibe. You know, Mike Joy obviously is, uh, you know... I mean, he's what? The Al Michaels of his of his position. And right. yeah, I'm, not, I'm not saying Tony Stewart's not good. I just... You know, it, it was one of those things where you are like, "Oh, wow! I didn't know Tony Stewart had been rehabilitated enough to now to be on TV like that."
1: But let's be honest; they're looking for personalities. They're looking for anything to try to hype what they're doing. And and Jeff Gordon had made it clear that he was uh, the the week to week travel and the grind and all of that. He was he had done it now for a few years and was and was ready to do something else. Uh, for them. So there you go on that with the NASCAR. All right, we have gotten to it. Let's get to some of these now. It's, uh, It's something that we love to conclude our podcast conversations with. Here we go. Love it or leave it. Subject number one, interesting that the college football playoff has made the announcement since last we talked, we're going to stay at four teams, all the talk of expansion to a 12-team playoff and far more playoff games for ESPN. It appeared at one point that was going to be a shoe-in, but the Big Ten, the Pac-12 and the ACC formed an alliance, not unlike Survivor. My twins, I keep bringing them up on the podcast. They love to watch the old episodes of Survivor where everybody has an alliance and who's going to vote who out. That alliance remained strong and said, but no, we're not going to unanimously do this. The three of us don't think it's in our best interest to expand the playoff right now. Uh, Thus, uh, it's going to remain, John, for the next four years, the final four years of the original 13-year deal at only four teams. Your reaction to that, your thoughts on this real quick? Do you love the move? Do you think it was a mistake? And they they shouldn't have left it. They should have expanded it.
2: Well, my reaction is, why does the Pac-12 get a vote? Yeah, that's my reaction. Uh, Look, when it comes down to it, I get, you know, if the Big Ten doesn't want to do it, okay, the Big Ten is big. If the ACC doesn't want to do it, I kind of get that. The ACC isn't big, but you know it's So, you know, but if the Pac-12 doesn't want to do it, who cares, right? I mean, let's just be clear. The Pac-12 at this point doesn't deserve to have a greater say than the American Athletic Conference does, right? Let's just, I mean, at least in football. So uh, my initial reaction is why on earth does the Pac-12 get a vote here? Um, Beyond that, I think, you know, um, obviously there's great benefit in expanding the playoffs from a media standpoint. And but they'd screw that up anyway. You'd find some way it'd just be way more SEC teams in there. So instead of it being Alabama versus Georgia, it'd be a, a semifinals of Alabama versus, you know, I don't know, Texas A&M and Georgia versus LSU or something like that. Right. Uh, and the, the problem isn't how many teams are in the playoff. The problem is that, you know, you have one really dominant conference. Right. What are you going to do about that? You know, and no amount of expansion is going to, it's going to fix that. What they really should do is consider, um, you know, well, what they really need to do is to go back to those New Year's Day bowls, meaning something, right? And, uh, you know, back when, you know, certainly early 90s, you know, mid 90s, pre-BCS, I don't necessarily know how it would be done, but my thought is you schedule all those big New Year's Day bowl games, irrespective of seeding. It's all about conference ties. So the best Big 10 team plays the best Pac-12 team in the Rose Bowl and so on and so forth with the other bowls. And then the two best teams after that so there's no semifinals. It's basically like a regular season Saturday, but with bowl games based on those you know, conference tie ins. After that, the number one seed, the number two seed play in the national championship. And that way you still you have more meaningful games on New Year's Day and you still end up with the national title you're
1: using new year's day as essentially the impetus for who are the two best teams and that way everybody draws in exactly what you're saying i got you on that well and interesting just as a quick note we had had debate on this podcast about whether the rose bowl would move off of its slot the sugar bowl following in prime time those two bowl games have basically been there the Rose Bowl certainly in that slot for 50 years basically has been in the, in the late afternoon on New Year's Day. The Sugar Bowl's been there for some 30 years or so in the prime time. The Sugar Bowl and ESPN have announced they will move it off of the New Year's Day coverage because this time when it comes around, John, I believe the games are slated to be on the day after on January 2nd because the NFL will play on exactly. Sunday on New yeah. Year's Day. So the Sugar Bowl is actually going to move to New Year's Eve. They are actually going to move off of it with some flexibility.
2: You notice the Rose Bowl Bowl doesn't insist on being on New Year's Day when the NFL comes (laughs) knocking around, right?
1: Very true. Um,
2: So, you know, look, I I think when it comes down to it, uh, this system isn't working just the same way that the previous system didn't work, the same way that the system before that didn't work. What was that, the bowl alliance? Nothing has worked because realistically- it you know you can't have the NCAA tournament in college basketball, college football. That's what you really need. You need to have you know sixty four teams and whatnot, and you just can't do that. Uh, so to me, I say honestly, I say scrap the whole thing. Uh, you know, even to scrap the computers. Let's go back. You have your regular New Year's Day bowls, right, with all the tie-ins, and then after that, the the Associated Press says who's the number one team is and who the number two team is yeah and you play but there it at, was
1: so much screaming because they would split it they would then share it and no and then there's no winner and no we can't go back to I that disagree but, we can't go back to that
2: but the, but you see the reason you can do that is now they could play for it so if you have two teams that are saying oh these are your co-national champions well no because they'll play for it the top two teams will play for the title I like that the week after
1: I like that. It's the oh.
2: old system from the '90s, but with a national championship game a week after the fact.
1: And again, uh, this is a larger play, and we're not going to get into it here. That they want a second television partner and a second television deal, and in particular, Fox for the for the Big yeah. Ten and the Pac-12, Fox to come into play and rotate the uh, the semifinals and the championship game on another TV partner, just like every other sport seemingly has sure. split TV partners, besides ESPN just controlling it. All right. Exactly.
2: I'm, well, I just wanted to say, I'm quite sure they're sick and tired of having every single one of their big games on cable every year. They see the cable subscriber numbers going down as much as anybody else sees. Right. It. And they're you know, saying to themselves, why are we on cable every year? Even the basketball. Yeah, they're on cable this year, every other year on Turner. But we understand why Turner's splitting half the bill. Right. But every other year it's on regular CBS. And, you know, for college football, that's the least you can ask for is, okay if we have to be on ESPN one year, we're on Fox the next. So we're getting the full amount of viewers that we can get, or at the very least, simulcast the games on ABC like you do with the NFL. But of course, the NFL has much greater pull over ESPN than the CFP does.
1: Well said on that. Next subject right here. Love it or leave it. I know you wanted to bring this up on love it or leave it. Uh, there is a social media personality and she now also does uh, work with Bally sports. Annie Agar is her name. She's risen to prominence with uh, essentially funny videos about the NFL, sarcastic, uh, making fun of teams, making fun of players as a big social media presence. Well, it turns out, Uh, Not unlike some others in the past, she has in her background some social media tweets that are racially insensitive and uh, ethnically uh, insensitive. And so she's had to apologize for that. And there is still damage. Uh, and fall out from that and pressure on Valley sports to get rid of her, et cetera, et cetera. There's also a second situation with this, but John, what do you want to say on, on going back to research people's social media posts from years and years in the case of Annie Agar and the next young lady that we're going to talk about in a second, you're talking about going back eight or 10 years to look at things. What, what is your thought on love it or leave it? Well, in general,
2: I think the uh, old tweet thing has gotten a bit tired. Uh, I, I find that trying to dig up things that people said a million years ago to, you know, get one over on them or something is just it's long gone away from the goal of trying to root out, you know, bad behavior and bad beliefs. And really, this could become a tool by which to just try to harm people. Right. Uh, and ultimately, you know, I can't speak to well, I mean, I've never heard of Annie Agar before. I saw this on Awful Announcing and it was like, wow, we're doing this again. What is this 400th time? And, you know, like to me, I'm an African-American man. I'm not exactly fond of the whole lot, you know, like the opinion she had about Kaepernick is not one that I would share. Uh, But, you know, I mean, enough is enough already. Um, You know, me personally, uh, I, I think the jump the shark moment for digging up people's old tweets uh, came several years ago and the the example you know it's interesting because i I had only known about the annie agar situation you brought up to me Mm -hmm. right before we did the podcast that apparently the poor woman who fell backward off of the stage at the rams game last week at the The rams Rams
1: celebration the super bowl celebration is where she was and
2: and she broke her back apparently she had some bad tweets Now I'm going to say something right off the bat. So I am, I I did read the awful announcing piece. So I have some idea of what Annie Agar said. I have no idea what the Rams photographer said at all. And I don't necessarily think that I have to know what she said to feel like I don't get why people were digging up the social media history of someone who fell backwards. Well, let's get into
1: that. Let's get into that in the full context of what happened. So she falls backwards off the stage. And first of all, it's a horrible look for Matt Stafford because he doesn't even check on her, doesn't even look at her. He's in some level of intoxication. Literally, he admitted that he's not even checking on her. His wife is checking on her. She fell some eight or 10 feet off a platform backwards and broke her back. All right. So they tend to her and then they started. This is human interest and humans rallying around humans. They started a fund to help her with any medical expenses or if she's laid up from work because she's a freelance photographer that was there working the event and trying to take pictures and uh, do a little bit of a freelance uh, job and work. And I'm going to get her name um correct um on this just to make sure kelly smiley is the young woman's name that fell all right so then as you described there is somebody that decides to go back in her background and look at her tweets literally from like 2013 and 14 going back some eight nine years where she is and again i'm not excusing this i'm just sharing with you what the facts are she is an early teenager And at times, she is quoting rap music lyrics and using the N-word from rap music lyrics. That's a large part of what this is about. So fast forward now, we have celebrities that have picked up on donating to her fund to help her that now disavow. Pat McAfee of the Pat McAfee Show not only puts a social media post out about it, he talks about it on his show, that he regrets having done it, this is not what he stands for, blah, blah, blah. Okay, your reaction now that you know the full scope (laughs) of they were trying to help her and now it's almost cancel culture let's uh, how did we ever try to help this person let's get rid of her so there there's the scenario go ahead
2: it's not cancel culture it's really just kind of cruelty honestly because what in the world does terrible stuff she said 10 years ago have to do with the fact that she fell backwards and broke her back right so like to me you know again I'm an African-American man. I speak only for myself. There's a lot of folks out there who believe that Black people are a monolith and Black people are not a monolith. I don't dare speak for any other Black person but myself. Uh, me personally, I joined YouTube or didn't join it, but I, I when YouTube came around, I was about 15, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to age myself, but, uh, you know, <laughs> When YouTube debuted, I was an early adopter. I was on it right from the beginning. The very first thing I noticed was, holy cow, it's a lot of people my age, white people my age using the N-word a lot. I was pretty surprised by it. Um, the fact of the matter is, it's a sad reality that a lot of a lot of white kids back then and into the early parts of the 2010s, you you know, enjoyed probably the license that they felt that they had from rap music to say a naughty word that they knew they weren't allowed to say not an excuse by any stretch of the imagination, but it's also not something that I personally care about at all. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying I would be a lot more upset about, say something like Kyle Larson, where you're a grown adult, multi-millionaire pro athlete who obviously knows better than I would be about some random kid at, you know, 13. Sure. And beyond sure. anything else, beyond anything else. And by the way, Kyle Larson back in NASCAR won the whole darn thing last year, which I'm sure they were really excited about in NASCAR headquarters to have him be their top driver last year. But, you know, I mean, it's just look again, I, you know, um, I don't know anything about this story other than what you just told me. And it just sounds like insane cruelty. It sounds so cruel. She's laid up with a broken back, having to pay the penance for stuff she said so you're saying what, 2013, and how old is she? You know,
1: correct? Probably, probably an early teenager, something like that. It's if I right. have it correct, 2013, I mean, 2014. She appears to be in her mid 20s. She's at the most 25, 26 years old. All right.
2: So I mean, you no, know, I mean, I'm sorry, but whatever. Uh, that's just cruel. If if you're if you're now not wanting to donate to the fund of someone who had a mishap and broke their back because they said something mean uh, t- 10 years ago, then you're not you're not doing it for me. I'll tell you that. If you think that you're doing this. So that I, as an African American, will feel somehow better. You're mm-hmm. not doing it for me. Do not, do not pretend that you're being cruel to this person on my behalf because you're not. Uh, now, again, you know, I want to be careful here because you know, uh, I, I'm assuming that the extent of it is is what you've said, and that he wasn't out there saying stuff like you know, Hitler had good ideas. Like uh, who was it, <laughs> the Red Zoner, that said that? March shot. Mar- I right. did say that, right? I don't
1: want to, I believe I so. Wanna... Yes. Or something right. to that effect. She had a right. swastika in a, in a, uh drawer in the foyer of her, of her home that wow. others could see and and actually brought it out at times to show it to people uh, right. because of the German heritage that she had, there was no doubt and dispute about the racism that right. was there. Yeah. So with more, Mar- so, you know, we're talking about,
2: but you know, like, I mean, I just, I, I, I just find this kind of stuff so repugnant and uh, you know, <sighs> I just I just find it repugnant. Like, what are you even doing looking up someone's old tweets when they fell backwards off a floor? The mean,
1: the mean world that we're in. This is this is part of we've got we've got to be mean and in and in a lot of cases uh, vindictive towards people and, and bring out the <laughs> worst in people. That's just what it's become. That's what it leads to. Um,
2: the thing about it is yeah. that everybody wants grace. Everybody wants when they screw up to be given grace. Sure. And if you want that. And i know i want that i'm sure you want that too sure if you want grace then you have to give it now that doesn't mean you have to forgive every jerk who does something terrible but right. it does mean that in a circumstance where somebody had something happen to them through no fault of their own that has nothing to do with anything they said it's just something that happened to them i mean what is the precedent that is being said here in terms of are we now going to every single time Someone suffers a malady that's completely random and an accident. We're going to dig up their social media history to make sure we should we should feel bad. I I, I can't. So that one I didn't even know about that when we you know before we started. And as far as the Annie Agar one, you know, realistically, um, yeah, she's got some. You know, uh, I saw the one about Kaepernick. I don't agree. I happen to think that. Being able to, you know, protest during the national anthem is a perfectly fine thing to do. I believe in freedom of speech. If you believe in freedom of speech, then why should you ever be bothered by someone, you know, choosing to protest during the national anthem? The song is not—it's not, you know, church, and it's not, you know, you're not going up for communion, right? You know, ultimately, if you want to speak your mind or, or, or something along those lines, but I don't necessarily feel that expressing the view that she did is somehow you know i disagree with it fairly vehemently that's the extent of it i don't need her to lose her job what is that
1: all right well said on that we have reached uh, our conclusion here any final thoughts as we played a little love it or leave it here at the very end um no, we anything, a, anything else that we've not covered before we're done on this edition john lewis
2: talk about a lot of heavy stuff today right Yeah, a little bit heavier than than usual. Right. We'll make
1: it we'll make it a little lighter that we're inside of three weeks as we're releasing the podcast for Selection Sunday. And I cannot wait for the NCAA tournament to come back around in full form and be all over the country in different locations. Remember, it was only in Indianapolis a year ago. Anxious about that. Anxious to get the baseball season underway. We're not going to do it officially as a love it or leave it, but can we get it solved? I mean, I'm in Florida, and for those that are in Florida for the Grapefruit League and in Arizona for the Cactus League, League, there are uh, hundreds, if not thousands, that are relying on the employment and the income and the money that comes in for spring training. And for – I'm going to lay it on the line on the podcast here. For Rob Manfred and for the owners of Major League Baseball – to just thumb their nose at those people that have been waiting again for this to come around when they did not have it two years ago. Um, uh, I, I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, two years ago, it was basically shut down because of COVID-19 last year. It was tempered down greatly and you were wanting it to come back at full uh, volume for the hotel owners, the restaurant tours, the all the local communities that have spring training baseball, It is looking more and more like they're going to thumb their nose and say, we don't need a full five or six weeks of spring training. We're going to do it for a week or 10 days. And that's going to be it. And all of this in the name of TV contract money and greed and how to divide it all up, John Lewis.
2: Well, you know, I mean, it's always important to remember. The lockout is the owner's decision. A strike is the player's decision, but a lockout is the owner's decision. And what if we had since 1994 exclusively lockouts? just lockouts. There has not been a player strike anywhere in the four major sports since 1994 in baseball. And every single time, so the owners, you know, look, the players were very aggressive in the seventies. They got free agency. And ever since the owners have just been getting every single thing they lost in the seventies back. The NBA getting the salary cap in 83 was the beginning of this shift toward the owners being really aggressive in collective bargaining. And as the, as the players pointed out last week, and it needs to be understood by every single fan out there, you can play on an expired CBA. It's happened before. It would not be difficult at all to continue playing on an expired CBA. You can play on an expired CBA forever if you want, right? Correct. The reality is there's no baseball right now solely and completely because of the owners, only because of them.
1: And can I follow up? The belief of the players has been ever since the pandemic began and the shortened season began and the shenanigans went on two years ago that this is all part of a multi act play to get whatever they want. And now the agreement is expired and now the lockout is in place and the players are standing around saying, We told you two years ago, this is what they were planning on doing and why we didn't agree to the salary deals and stuff then when we still had an agreement, when we still had a collective bargaining agreement. And so that's just kind of the backdrop while baseball remains shut down. For those that love the game, for those that like the game and want to see the game, let's hope they get it resolved. I'm just disappointed one more time that I'm in West Central Florida which usually has seven or eight teams within an hour of where I am. And all these small communities that have restaurants, hotels, hundreds and thousands of visitors coming in to spend money and go to games. All of that is being robbed right now because baseball is content to sit back and say, Hey, we make so much money off the TV contract. We just write that off. Who cares? Who cares about all those people? There's my feelings.
2: I mean, but, you know, baseball doesn't care about any, what, what owners care about anybody. You know, one of the great lies right. in sports is that the owners care about the cities they play in. I mean, right? You know, uh, they care about getting nice uh, nice freebies from the taxpayers for the stadiums. That's about it, realistically. Uh, and they, they have no ties to the communities that they're involved in, for the most part. I mean, maybe if some of them are particularly charitable, but they have no ties at all. They are just in it for, you know, the money. And
1: like you said, we've been, we've covered a lot of dark subjects here, but we've had some fun with some different sports. What do you, uh, give me something just real quick before we go? Are you looking forward to something here in the short term or whatever it is that you're anxious to watch, the resumption of the NBA season, whatever it is? Give me something real quick before we're gone.
2: Well, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing more about Aaron Rodgers' various, uh, you know, his various cleanses.
1: Oh, as somebody that has recently done that for a colonoscopy. I can empathize with uh, cleaning out the plumbing. Let's just say and putting it out there, you know, but that's the the first. The Instagram post came out, and now we've come to find out that that post came at the end of this cleanse, where he completely rid himself of crapola, literally. Yeah. Yeah. So there you I go. I will
2: say he's Aaron is oversharing a lot. I uh, and I don't just mean <laughs> in terms of this. Just generally, this whole time he's been oversharing, and you know, I talked before about. The, the superhuman and the human in the olympics realistically people want their athletes and maybe they're wrong to want this but in general historically they want their athletes to be on the court and that's it michael right. jordan became incredibly famous and michael jordan was like the original law and order you ever watch the original law and order we don't see Jack about any of their lives. We don't know Jack McCoy's life. We don't know Briscoe's life. We don't know, you know, any and all the other law and orders that aren't as good. We know about the, the characters lives like Goren and Eames and criminal intent, SVU. But the, the one law and order, the main law and order, the one they're bringing back, we don't know Jack about their lives. They just go out, they do their thing and that's it. Right, right. And that was Michael Jordan. He was the law and order of of sports and people loved him. They loved knowing only the basketball. He never shared an opinion about anything which a lot of people justifiably judge him for. Um, You know, I mean, you don't ever use your incredible platform to ever try to affect change. I'm not necessarily saying that he's wrong for that but I understand why people judge him for that. Um, But when it comes down to it, this era of athletes sharing so much of themselves has drawbacks. The drawbacks include that half the country will hate you. It, they include that people will, you know, start to lose respect for you at times as well. And none of this is particularly fair. And I, 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 it's tough for me because I'm glad that people are wanting to be real. But I also know the way that all of this works and that ultimately nobody around Aaron Rodgers, nobody with any of the organizations he's a part of, nobody with the NFL, no one with ESPN, nobody wants him to be doing this. They want him to just go out and play and it's shut up and play. It's the same thing as for everybody else. It's the same thing as for, you know, LeBron, right? The impulse to want athletes to shut up and play is a bad one, but ultimately it is what the industry has been sustained by for a very long time, really since the end of Ali. Ali was certainly not an athlete who would shut up and play. But you notice he only became beloved when he could not speak. And that's when he was, you know, lighting the torch at the Olympics. It's screwed up. It shouldn't be that way.
1: (laughs) I've often said this. uh, I know what you're saying. We want uh, authenticity. We want (laughs) honesty. We want something besides cliches and stock answers. And then we get it. And then we want to vilify one side or the other on on when you get that. We just we can't figure out what we want. I know this. We've come to the end of another SportsMediaWatch.com podcast. John Lewis, I always appreciate uh, your insight, your time. We encourage them to read the site. We encourage them not only to hear you here, but hear you on with Richard Deitch's podcast. Uh, as he does a fantastic job with his sports media podcast uh, as well. John, thank you. We'll do this again uh, soon. I appreciate all the insight on the Olympics. We talked some Daytona. We we talked uh, the NBA All-Star game. We covered a lot of different subjects. Thank you as always, my friend. Hey, no problem. There is John Lewis. I'm merely TJ Reeves. Again, however, you found the podcast, social media link, sportsmediawatch.com website, which John does a great job on. Keep reading the site. Make sure you follow or subscribe to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. We are good for now on the sportsmediawatch.com podcast. Bye.
0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient.